0: Let me your. A little help from our friends, indeed. And, of course, that's an apt way to start our second segment. As uh, as I was reading on, on a trip to L.A. this weekend, uh, Sky and Telescope magazine always has some great pictures, great articles. Came across an article by Charles Laird Calia titled, The Astronomy of Robert Frost. Of course, America's celebrated poet. And it made me think of our good friend, Dr. Andy Jones. And I thought it would be perfect to bring him on at this juncture because, you know, Robert Frost astronomy, that's poetry, that's technology. Let's talk to Dr. Andy. Are you there, Dr. Andy?
1: I thank you, Doug, for thinking
0: of me. <laughs> well, well, this is just has your name all over it. I mean, Robert Frost and, and, and waxing philosophic about the telescope.
1: Well, uh, Robert Frost has always been a great nature poet. He lived uh, up there in New England where uh, there are many cold and cloudless nights when young Frost could go outside and look at the heavens, and he was inspired to write a a number of poems inspired by what he saw there.
0: The article notes that I did not know this. He moved from San Francisco. He was a San Francisco native to Lawrence, Massachusetts at age 11 in, I guess, 1885.
1: He once told the story of being in church when in San Francisco it started to snow, so everyone immediately stood up and left church. (laughs) <laughs> to go out and watch a very rare snowstorm descend upon the uh, the city of the Golden Gates.
0: Yes, I'm, I, and, I, and I'm sure that he laughed about that when, when he was later li- living in Massachusetts.
1: I'm sure he was, and I'm sure he surprised many people if he told them that uh, he was actually born in our fair state, California.
0: Well, it notes in this article that for centuries, poets have waxed lyrical when looking up writers such as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Emily Dickinson... Gerard Manley Hopkins, whom I'm sorry to say I don't know much about, and Lord Byron used to pen, uh, used the pen to hint at their astronomical yearnings.
1: Well, Hopkins is a is a great poet. He's a Jesuit priest who used to find uh, evidence of God everywhere he looked, and he had the most uh, lyrical of of voices. He could write lines that were gorgeous to listen to, but which were difficult to understand, I bet you'd like to hear an example. I would. Alright, good, because I've got one in my head just for <laughs> such an occasion. <clears throat> From his poem, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. And I'll just give you the first uh, five lines of the poem. Kay. As Kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rims and roundy wells, stones ring. As each touch string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name.
0: Wow. Well, Dr. Andy, that's why we go to you for the poetry. Because here on Radio Parallax, it just came as a recent revelation that poems don't have to start with "Roses are red and violets are blue."
1: That's true, Doug. There are huge anthologies waiting for you and your listeners to peruse and to really uh, kind of find out a little bit more beyond the uh, the bathroom wall limerick.
0: <laughs> well, we we do we do enjoy those. I note here on on this article about about Frost that. Um, well, there's a couple of great lines here. He, t- he was apparently very down on um, a phenomenon that is pervasive in America now, light pollution. When he first started witnessing the electrification of rural America in the 20s and all the light bulbs on the horizon, he, he, he penned the line, the idea is no doubt to make one job of lighting the whole night with one big blob.
1: And really, he, he kind of predicted with that blob line, didn't he? The uh, suburbification of America... So that we've become one huge stream of track homes with only Walmarts to,
0: yes, I us. note having grown up in the Bay Area, in fact, I was there uh, last night um what the stars were like when I was a kid looking up uh, from Fremont at the, at the night sky and what it's like now, and it's a pretty sad comparison.
1: You have to drive a long distance to uh find a sky full of stars as frost as it sounds like you were used to in your
0: childhood he noted uh, I, if I can quote. <laughs> This is unusual. I'm, I'm quoting poetry to you. That That is an unusual occurrence, but... Uh, I'm
1: shocked, but let's hear it. <laughs> but
0: there's a poem that they, they cited called A Loose Mountain, where he was writing about the Leonid meteor shower, in which Frost said, It is but fiery puffs of dust and pebbles, no doubt directed at our head as rebels, in having taken artificial light against the ancient sovereignty of night.
1: In another poem, Lost in Heaven, he said... But stars were scarce in that part of the sky, and no two were of the same constellation. No one was bright enough to identify, so twas with not ungrateful consternation, seeing myself well lost once more, I sighed, where, where in heaven am I? But don't tell me, O opening clouds, by opening on me wide, let's let my heavenly lostness overwhelm me.
0: Guy's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Dr. Andy, uh, th- thanks for for, uh, for for talking with us a bit about this, and we would uh, we would want to steer all of our listeners to tune in Wednesday night at 5 o'clock for your excellent offerings.
1: Well, thank you very much, Doug, and I'll be checking back every Thursday at 5 to see if I can hear more poetry on Radio Parallax. We're
0: going to see if we can insert a little bit more inspired by you, sir.
1: Thank you very much. All
0: right. Oh, I can't buy- And speaking of astronomy, we'd like to point out that today, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, marks the date during the year in which we have equal daylight and night. Now, I know that uh, we're expecting spring, the first day of spring, the vernal equinox to be on the 21st, the day in which it's traditionally uh, found that day and night are equal, but In reality, the sun refracts. It bends around the curvature of the earth a little bit, bent through the atmosphere. So we get a little extra bit of daylight every day, enough so that um, the actual date in which um, day and night are equal comes today. And, And by odd coincidence, it appears that on today's date, you will find a roughly equal number of drunk and sober Irishmen. And for you eclipse chasers, and and I hope there are a few of you out there, or I hope at least someone, at least one person listening to our show today, perhaps as you're driving about on on I-80 or in the Bay Area or up in the foothills or near Tahoe, wherever you may be, if you're planning a trip to Central America in the near future, keep in mind that on April 8th, the new moon, when the moon laps on the inside of the earth, will produce an annular eclipse if you are in southern Costa Rica, or Panama. Now, this is a very interesting eclipse. It, it, you know, There's a cone of, of darkness behind a celestial body. Most of the solar system, of course, is bathed in light. If you're going to find night, you're gonna find it in that cone-shape area of darkness behind a body orbiting the sun. Now, it so happens that on this eclipse on April 8th, the moon's shadow falls just a bit short of the Earth when it makes contact with the Earth. But the distance, the width of the Earth is enough to where by the time the shadows move to the center of the Earth, you actually do have full eclipse. So it's what's called a hybrid eclipse. It starts out as an annular, meaning that there's a ring of sun around the moon when you when the eclipse begins at daylight on a particular part of the Earth. And there's also the same phenomenon at sunset, which which is what you'll witness if you're in Panama or Costa Rica. But for lucky people out in the Pacific Ocean, you may actually get a half a minute or so of a genuine, legitimate, total eclipse. But if you want to see that one, you should have made plans already. But if you're going to go to Central America, check out. annular eclipses are not bad either. I saw one in 1992 down in in San Diego. And although it's not nearly as spectacular as a total, Uh, It's something to see, especially at sunset. We promised you on last week's show we were going to talk about the the passing of a giant of science, Dr. Hans Bethe, and we're going to try and, I think, end this segment with that. But uh, let's do a little bit of a roundup of some miscellaneous news, particularly legal news, for starters. A court in San Francisco has declared the ban on gay marriage invalid. and What this is going to mean is it's going to march its way up to the Supreme Court and I will predict right here and now that gay marriage will be struck down definitively by the United States Supreme Court. We in this program have had misgivings all along about this idea of promoting gay marriage. We certainly support the idea of equal rights. We certainly support the idea that uh, that a loving relationship should be entitled to the sorts of, um, of uh, civil rights that we grant uh, other other couples. But when you call it a marriage and insist that it's got to be a marriage, and it's got to be a marriage as valid as any other marriage, and you focus on that word marriage, you are going to lose not only the red states, but substantial numbers of people in the blue states. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, that's what's right, and that's what should be done. But, you know, this is one battle I think needs to be put off into the future, uh, for risk of losing the war, if if you'd like to see the neocons and right wing of the GOP lose an election any time in the foreseeable future, then it would be good, I think, not to hand them a very large club with which to beat the opposition. I'm more interested in uh, in this article from the San Francisco Chronicle, dated the fourth of February, about Enron's early gaming, that I'll get to in a second. But in the celebrity, uh, you know pop culture, uh, um, trash journalism passing as popular entertainment, meaning like the, the Scott Peterson trial, the, the Robert Blake trial, the, uh, the Michael Jackson trial, etc. Uh, well, there's been a mixed bag here. All of a sudden of late, Scott Peterson has been uh, been sentenced to death. He becomes the 644th person on California's death row. But on the other hand, Robert Blake, in spite of the testimony of a couple of Hollywood stuntmen that he tried to hire them to kill his wife, and his wife's mysterious death from a gunshot wound to the head while sitting in a parked car as he went back to the restaurant to retrieve his pistol, (laughs) Uh, somehow this didn't, didn't convince a jury that there seemed to be guilt there. I don't know. Does that mean the system works? I sure don't think so. Well, I'd say we're one for two on that. Good on Peterson, bad on Blake. Uh, in terms of Michael Jackson, well, we already mentioned Michael Jackson. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll come back to him. I was at least pleased to see that Bernard Ebbers over at WorldCom uh, was nailed to the wall for the fact that he was manipulating the, com- the company, telling people how to cook the books in order to uh, fulfill Wall Street expectations and keep the stock prices up. He's taken a hit. I hope he goes down. I hope this man spends the rest of his life in prison. He certainly deserves it. I have a hard hardworking uh, uh, physician I know who lost something like $300,000. I mean, a substantial amount of his work over the past few years, money that will not be available to his children, for their college fund, for his grandchildren, etc., because of the efforts of Mr. Evers. Hope he rots in jail. And hopefully, this is sending a, a chill up the spine of people like Enron. Uh, of course, Enron has a lot of friends in high places. But back to that article from the Chronicle. Let me just quote from it. Uh, now, this comes from there's a utility company in, in Washington where court uh, internal documents were, were sought in the current court battle over Enron that were very revealing. This article notes that Enron, the Houston company, which made at least $1.6 billion during California's energy crisis, Spotted weaknesses in the state's deregulation plan even before it went into effect, according to officials with the Sonomish County Public Utilities District. Phone transcripts show Enron searching for reasons to shut down one of its power plants during the height of the California energy crisis, eventually closing the plant as blackouts rippled across the state. As we've mentioned before in this program, we have some friends at PG&E. If they will come and talk to us, we'll be able to flush this story out, we hope. But according to the article, the district up in Washington canceled an expensive contract with Enron just before the bankruptcy filing, prompting Enron to sue the district for $122 million. The district is is fighting that claim, insisting the bankrupt firm owes it $40 million in damages. I I sure do hope that that the, the Enron hierarchy gets to see the inside of a jail cell, although since they're such good pals, in fact, Kenny Lay of Enron was the current president, George W. Bush's number one lifetime financial supporter prior to his um, uh, finagling his way into the White House in, in, in the year 2000. But uh, let's just note that um, one of the transcripts that they've uncovered includes an Enron trader, identified uh, as Bill Williams, calling an operator at the company's 52-megawatt Las Vegas power plant on January 16th 2001, and asking them to be taken out of operation the following day. Quote, we want you guys to get a little creative and come up with a reason to go down, he said in the transcript. The plant ceased operation the next day as blackouts hit California. Now, this produced shortages, which caused the state of California to have to purchase energy on the spot market at like 10 or 100 times the going rate. I would say the state of Texas, in particular Enron, was waging a successful economic war on the state of California, uh, which we're still having repercussions from. Our budget uh, mess can be traced back to this energy crisis in 2001 to no small degree. We're going to keep following this one. Our understanding on this program is that Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who couldn't remember the fact that he had a meeting with Kenny Lay before, throwing his hat into the ring for governor. Uh, the current governor, former bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, decided, as we understand it, to call off the dogs on California's participation in the lawsuit against Enron. But we're going to try and verify that in, in future programs. Let's talk about the passing of, of Hans Bethe. One of our favorite books we've mentioned many times on this show is The 100 by Michael Hart a listing of the most influential persons in world history. Uh, this book was rather um, rather amazingly imitated. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. John Simmons pretty much used the exact same format in a book called The Scientific 100, a ranking of the most influential scientists, past and present. Interesting to note that uh, the late Dr. Beta ranked 58th On the list of the 100 most influential scientists, past and present, pretty high station. This book ranks him ahead of such uh, better-known names, perhaps, as Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin, as well as J. Robert Oppenheimer and Edward Teller, uh, Hans Bethe's co-workers on the atomic bomb. Also, Gregor Mendel, ranked behind Hans Bethe. I think for the definitive article on, uh, on this obituary, we would like to refer you to the New York Times article by William J. Broad, which I think we should excerpt. It's, it's, it's excellent and really gives you a full picture, I think, of, uh, of this man's life. Hans Bethe, who discovered the violent force behind sunlight, helped devise the atomic bomb, and eventually cried out against the military excesses of the Cold War, died late Sunday. He was 98, among the last of the giants who inaugurated the nuclear age. Speaking of astronomy and starlight as we were just a minute ago, it's sort of amazing to think that before Hans Bethe explained what was going on inside of stars, such as our sun, it was just a great mystery. Hans Albrecht Bethe was born on July 2, 1906, in Strasbourg, Alsace, Lorraine. To a family of modest means, his father, a physiologist at the University of Strasbourg, was a Protestant, his mother was Jewish. He demonstrated early on an exceptional aptitude for math and physics, and by 1928 received a doctorate graduating summa cum laude from the University of Munich. After stints at several universities, Beta came into conflict with the new Nazi race laws and he fled Germany in 1933. For two years, he taught in England, and then came to Cornell University in Ithaca, where he remained the rest of his academic life. At Cornell, Dr. Beta wrote a series of brilliant papers that culminated in the 1938 treatise Energy Production in Stars. It set forth the first and only explanation of stellar energy that explained all the known facts, essentially why stars like the sun burn for billions of years. Also in 1938, German scientists discovered that the atom could be split in two in a burst of atomic energy. Now in America, Bethe discussed the matter with Edward Teller, another refugee from the Nazis. The two were close friends at the time. The Hungarian physicist Teller was one of the few guests invited when Dr. Bethe and his wife Rose were married in September of 1939. His reputation grew with the war effort. In 1940, Time Magazine called him one of Nazi Germany's greatest gifts to the United States. He was helping advance radar at MIT when an atomic recruiter came to call. Fearful that Nazi Germany wanted to develop atomic weapons, Beta went to work for the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, New Mexico. In 1943, he was named the first director of the theoretical division at Los Alamos. One of his protégés then was young Richard Feynman, later to win the Nobel Prize himself in the 1960s. By all accounts, Hans Bethe was brilliant at his job, but after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, while retaining links to the government and Los Alamos, he helped lead the Corps of Atomic Scientists who, in an unprecedented wave, left their secluded laboratories to plead before Congress and the American public for nuclear restraint. Now, while he was at, uh, at the Manhattan Project, Edward Teller, who would have liked to have headed the theoretical division, of course lost out the competition to Hans Bethe. Edward Teller then spent most of the rest of the time he was in Los Alamos uh, working for the hydrogen bomb, the super bomb, as they called it at that time. In April of 1950, Hans Bethe wrote a provocative article in Scientific American arguing against the development of the hydrogen bomb. He said it had little military use and it was primarily a weapon for incinerating civilians in large cities. By contrast, Edward Teller lobbied hard for the super bomb. And in fact, it was the reluctance of Los Alamos scientists to proceed that gave the world the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, where there was a little bit less resistance to proceeding with development of research into the thermonuclear bomb, the hydrogen bomb. During the Cold War, Teller and Beta went from increasingly cool friends to bitter foes. In a notorious episode in 1954, at the height of the McCarthy era, The government uh, pushed to remove the security clearance of Robert Oppenheimer, the man who, more than anyone else, was responsible for for the success of the American nuclear program. Oppenheimer, too, had argued against a crash program for the hydrogen bomb, and that was considered to be a black mark against him. In Washington, Beta and his wife spent an evening trying to persuade Edward Teller to testify in favor of Oppenheimer to no avail. At a secret hearing, Dr. Beta defended his former boss, and Teller strongly faulted Oppenheimer's judgment. Oppenheimer's clearance was eventually revoked and he quickly fell from power. Afterwards, Dr. Beta wrote a long article charging that Teller, not Oppenheimer, had hindered the nation's pursuit of the super bomb for years due to a series of mathematical errors. It was only after the size of Teller's mistakes became apparent, Beta wrote, that Teller and his colleagues were forced to find the right way to go about solving the problem. The article written in 1954 was quickly stamped top secret and only declassified three decades later. In the 50s and 60s, Hans Bethe became a driving force behind the world's first and most successful arms control pact, the 1963 Limited Test Ban Treaty, which confined nuclear tests to beneath the earth. In usual fashion, Edward Teller fought it all the way. Beta saw the treaty as a bold step towards disarmament and a way to end the reign of radioactive fallout that had increased people's risk of cancer and birth defects around the world. should note at this point that Andrei Sakharov, the father of the Soviet hydrogen bomb, had done similar similar calculations to Hans Beta and concluded that tests above ground constituted a grave danger and had to be stopped. He faced uh, censure by the Soviet government for for decades afterwards. In 1967, Hans Bethe's work as the father of nuclear astrophysics earned him the Nobel Prize in Physics. It was in the 60s and early 70s that Dr. Bethe studied the matter of anti-missile weapons and concluded that all such systems could be easily defeated. He then strongly opposed the deployment of such systems. Nevertheless, in 1975, at the cost of $6 billion, the government switched on a limited anti-missile system that was soon abandoned because of its ineffectiveness. As Hans Bethe's nemesis, Edward Teller, who got the ear of Ronald Reagan in 1983, and convincing the rather scientifically unsophisticated Reagan that a Star Wars defense system was available with off-the-shelf technology, The race was on again, an anti-missile defense system. After hearing Edward Teller's pitch on the physics of what he felt would be an X-ray laser in space, Bethe said, you have a splendid idea. But he soon led opposition to the X-ray laser, arguing that an enemy could easily outwit the exotic weapon. Dr. Schweber of Brandeis University, physicist and historian, said that Hans Bethe achieved a life of professional and personal fulfillment because he learned the redemptive power of love, of serving family and friends, students, and society. Bethe was quoted a few years back as saying, I'm a very happy person. I wouldn't want to change what I did. I think on next week's show, I'm going to round out the picture of Hans Bethe by quoting from Richard Feynman's excellent book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman about an episode that involves uh, Hans Bethe when they were both working together after the war. A man with a, a, a first-class uh, mind and a heart in the right place. You have to, you have to admire him. Um, Hans Bethe, we salute you. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.